Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student. I've got four medical students here with me today, and let's do some introductions. I'm Rhett Dotson, a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista University. I'm Cam Meekum, fourth-year medical student, Rocky Vista. I'm Angelo Garcia, third-year medical student from Rocky Vista University. And I'm Jamin Hemingway, a fourth-year medical student at Rocky Vista. All right, now, Cam, you're the, you're the medical student leading the charge on this podcast today, and... Uh, I think you did a podcast with me the first time you were here, but I don't recall. I know we got ready for it and maybe didn't get it done. Yeah, we. so I was back, or I was here back in February and March, and I think we did one podcast on uh, valproate, uh, valproic acid, Depakote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we had plans for more, but then COVID came around and kind of squashed all of those. So happy to be back. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, I think uh, the the Valproic Acid podcast is one of the most listened to podcasts. I think there's a lot of interest in uh, specific molecules and the ins and outs of those molecules. So um, something that we might go back to. Now this podcast today, tell us a little bit about it, why you're interested in it, and how it fits in with your future plans, and then we'll get started. How does that sound? I think that's great. So uh, so I, I'm pursuing emergency medicine. I've done a, a sub-I um, and will be applying for emergency medicine residency here in the next couple of weeks. Um, one of the prevailing issues or, or maybe one of the uh, most common patient presentations that we have uh, is uh, acute drug toxicities. Um, and so I, we, we've talked a little bit about how we would approach this because there are several uh, different drugs of abuse that we could touch on. And so we decided that we would start uh, PCP with PCP today. And so, uh, so as far as, as the idea, kind of the organization that we wanted to take, um, you know, I wanted to, to look at how, as an EM intern, I would view this, um, maybe a workup, um, and how ideally I would treat and help this patient in, uh, immediately in the emergency department. But I felt like uh, having your perspective as a psychiatrist and some of the, the long-term sequelae that can come from acute intoxication, um, how, how we can kind of see that through throughout the, the patient's life. And so that's, uh, that was kind of our, our point today. Yeah, I really like the idea. PCP is really a fascinating molecule to me. I, I, I mean, anything that uh, is used to anesthetize horses, right? That's got to have some kick behind it. Yeah, there's got to be something. <laughs> uh, so, so let's start off, first of all, just, just basic description of PCP. And I mentioned that it was uh, used to anesthetize horses, but I think more accurately it's... Uh, it's like a pre-induction agent, is that right? Yeah, so in, in terms of kind of making some connections here, PCP is a synthetic piperidine uh, derivative, and uh, it's very structurally similar to ketamine. So as medical students and, and going through basic pharmacology, I feel like we've uh, ketamine has become very popular, specifically at the MDMA receptor. And so it is an, uh, PCP is an MDMA inhibitor, and at high doses, it can also act on the norepinephrine and dopamine reuptake uh, um, inhi- inhibition, and uh, and even just a myriad of, of other uh, other receptors. And I think that that's probably why we see such a broad presentation, is based off of its dosage, the neurobiology and biochemistry of the patients. It, it really can uh, be all encompassing. Uh, but as you had mentioned, it, it has been used as a as an analgesic. It can be used as a, um, as a dissociative analgesic, much like ketamine. Um, but in terms of, of the drug pharmacology, it's, it's somewhat similar. 
So I want to go back to a couple of things that Please. you mentioned and, and <laughs> highlight those because I think they're really interesting. The first thing was that ketamine is very similar, but there were like 60 other compounds that were out and about and being used illicitly that were based on this piperidine molecule. And only one of those remains, right, uh, legally, and that's ketamine, and then the, the one that remains and is still misused quite commonly is the PCP. As I understood reading from the article that I think you're, you're referencing in part, it's uh, available as a uh, pill mm. called Peace, uh, Peace Pill, with the P and the C and the P capitalized, right, mm. to, to emphasize PCP. Uh, the liquid form is called, uh, what, WAC? Yeah. Is what they called it in the 70s or yeah. in the 80s when we read the, these articles are largely from that time when this was abused more than it is now. Yeah. But there's also some articles you sent me suggesting a comeback in certain places. Mm -hmm. And then also as a powder, right? Um, and I think, yeah, some of the, the colloquial terms for that would be like angel dust, uh, super glass. Um, others would be like rocket fuel, <laughs> dippers. So... Yeah. And especially in, in emergency medicine, you're going to be running into these, these patient populations fairly regularly. And so understanding some of those common uh, terms mm -hmm. uh, will help you in, in aiding you in your differential. Uh, when, when we were working in Houston, we saw a fair amount of, of PCP that was the liquid form dipped in cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And I think they were calling that wet at the time, but that was also a, a label used when people were dipping cigarettes or marijuana sure. into embalming fluids. So we, we had some difficulty knowing. I think the point is uh, there are different names for the same drugs and they can be regionally applied. So even if you learn the names that we're talking about, those names come in and go out. I think elephant I haven't heard for a long time, but that seemed to be a name that was popular in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, so, you know, learn, learn the language of the land and, and sure. know kind of how prevalent or common it is. And I think Texas has more PCP use, at, at least than Utah does, because I rarely see it here. Yeah, so I, I just completed a sub-I at, at uh, um, University of Texas at Austin, and, and being in their emergency departments, it, it seemed to be a, a pretty prevalent um, drug of abuse. Albeit, uh, I think maybe methamphetamine might beat it out, but uh, I was able to see uh, acute intoxication and, and withdrawal from that several times. And so, you mentioned also the effect uh, on some of the neurotransmitters that we're aware of. Mm -hmm. So, I think the article that you mentioned, which is the Dr. Bay article mm -hmm. uh, from 2007, suggested that it binds to the NMD, NMDA receptor and then to the norepinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin reuptake in inhibitors. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, <laughs> it inhibits those reuptake yes. uh, channels. And it also has some effect on the sigma receptor. And the sigma receptor has been a, uh, a receptor that's been renamed and I don't remember the new name for that right now. Um, but that's been associated with efficacy of um, Luvox, also known as fluvoxamine, and maybe treating um, psychotic depression. So there's something about psychosis maybe with that sigma receptor. Mm -hmm. Also mentioned that uh, it stimulates tyrosine. And so one of the hypotheses and one of the things to remember is that the effect on those um, neurotransmitters seems to have at least some of the sympathomimetic effects. And one of the reasons why we might see some of the symptoms we'll talk about a little bit later. For sure. But then also, that some of the effects that it has are very paradoxical. Mm -hmm. So you might have glutamate activity that's both increased and decreased depending on what part of the brain this is acting in or what time it's acting or what effect is more prominent at the sure. time. And so we'll be talking about maybe some of the variable effects of, 
of PCP in a little bit as well. And, and I think that's the basis of that. Yeah, and, and just as a quick adjunct to that too, there ha I found a resource that said that it can also hit opioid receptors, and so that kind of is a, a parasympathomimetic. Um, but overlaying with complexity of multi-drug use, you know, you have someone who comes in with alcohol intoxication <laughs> yes. too, but we, we won't get into the weeds there, but as far as clinical presentation, it, it is, it, we shouldn't wonder why there's a broad range. Actually, I think it's probably worth getting into the weeds. So not only are, is there a complex uh, receptor activity, mm -hmm. but there's also this complexity of multi-drug use, exactly. right? In the case series of a thousand patients that I think we'll reference uh, Dr. Karen and, and his group, they had, uh, what, uh, a thousand patients consecutive with PCP intoxication. And about 60% uh, had PCP only, but 40% roughly had at least one other drug. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's what I was seeing too. Uh, I, I think, I don't know, it, it maybe, maybe I can't comment with, with much validity, validity on this, but uh, it always seemed to me that there was something else on board, whether it's alcohol or uh, marijuana or something like that. It's it's easily accessible and easily um, mixed with, with other agents. So kind of as a last note before we, I mean, we've jumped a little bit into the weeds sure. already, I guess, but that's kind of the basis for where a lot of this will go. Um, the last thing worth mentioning is the, the effects that take somebody into the emergency room aren't the reason that people take this as a drug, right? This is a drug of abuse because it has this illusion of euphoria. Um, people have this feeling of superhuman strength, unbelievable social and sexual prowess, right? This mm -hmm. is a, a drug that makes people feel very, very good in many, many ways. And so, um, you know, that, that's the reason for abuse and you perhaps would see some of those uh, symptoms with somebody coming into the emergency room. Yeah, so let's talk about high yield principles that will come up on the, on the exams that you'll be taking. Uh, Rhett and Angela, you guys are just barely starting your rotation here. My guess is you've started looking at uh, exam preparation materials. Have you seen any questions on PCP and can you talk about any of the principles that you've seen tested yet? I have seen a kind of a classical vignette um, which involves, I think it's kind of a, a triad you could say, of hypertension nystagmus and aggressive behavior and that's the one that almost kind of tips me off on a vignette is if someone's getting aggressive that's almost always the drug that they're going for um, which is interesting because there are other drugs certainly that could invoke that response but that seems to be pretty classic from what I've seen. Yeah Angelo anything that you've seen? Yeah um, I can corroborate that as well but um, I remember one psychiatrist um, during second year when he taught the drugs of abuse saying that PCP was commonly uh, was commonly presented in, patients commonly presented with this intoxication in the hospital and they were very hyper aggressive including like being held down by a couple of police officers as well or maybe that was his him reminiscing about an experience with that I'm not sure but he mentioned that and that was pretty striking I think it's probably worth noting that one of the effects of this and I, th I think this is perhaps what he's alluding to is because it's an anesthetic if somebody gets aggressive they really don't respond to some of the pain compliance techniques that um, officers might use and, and as a re result we sometimes see this lead to pretty bad events right where 
where we see examples of police officers beating people with batons and, and really um, it, it just these really terrible situations that, mm -hmm. that um, people that are using PCP find themselves in. Um, I think, Cam, it's probably worth noting that we don't see a lot of um, we don't see a lot of PCP intoxication outside of an emergency room setting. I mean, that's where the diagnosis is. That's where we find it. That's where we see the effects of the intoxication gone wrong, so to speak. So I think the stem of a question is generally going to involve an emergency room. Yeah, I would be hard pressed to think of another clinical or another uh, situation where PCP intoxication would present. And so I think that more often than not, the vignette will highlight that uh, you know, in the emergency department, you know, a 28-year-old male presents with X, Y, and Z, kind of like what Rhett was saying, and, and Angelo as well. Um, and they might give you some information about their vital signs and, and maybe their hyperaggression. And most often, the que I mean, in terms of the questions that can be formed, it could be asking what receptor it is or what's the best way to, especially maybe for step two, what's the best way to, to first line to treat this or help get them under control. Um, but then I, it could, you know, take a myriad of, of uh, different approaches. I don't know, Jamin, do you have any thoughts on that? Any ideas? Um, you, you know, when you read this question, I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be in an emergency room. Um, but at least for me, I think it's valuable to think about what would my differential be as I'm reading the question. Mm -hmm. And because a couple things will present very similar, like serotonin syndrome, and have some of these same things. Um, withdrawing from some of the other medications like opioids will have some of the same side effects. So I'd focus on the difference because the really big difference that I think they're going to put in every question on PCP is that nystagmus. I agree. Because other than that, it, right, it could be cocaine, it could be amphetamines, it could yeah. be withdrawal. They have to you have to memorize what's the one this has that the other three doesn't. I think that's a that's worth highlighting. I think especially um, with my interest in, in emergency medicine, the, the idea is always question what is the worst case scenario right now and trying to gather a broad differential. And so, yeah, uh, alcohol or um, yeah, alcohol can present this way with a myriad of different things, amphetamines, bath salts, cocaine. And so it's, it's, it is focusing on those kind of buzzwords, I think is, is maybe the phrase that we use, uh, but nystagmus seems to be one of the more popular in terms of presentation. So I wanna jump into the weeds just a little bit now, because I, I think, I, I do think generally speaking, there's enough um, variability around treatment that probably the treatment questions are less likely than the identification questions. I agree. And, and so once we've, once we've highlighted the, the triad, the, the physical aggression, the hypertension, and the nystagmus, um, I, I, I wanna talk more about the articles that you sent because I think, I think these articles that were written in the 80s were, where people were saying, hey, we're seeing this over and over and over and yeah. here's our experience with it. There, there was some variability around that. So I, I wanna talk about, first of all, uh, the McCarran article. This was a thousand consecutive um, patients. Actually, it was 850, and then they, they identified another 150 patients, if I remember correctly. Mm -hmm. um, after they called the, they called somebody in their hospital, and they said, 
hey, we, we have no idea how to manage this stuff. Do you have any suggestions? And they said, hey, no, but here's another 150 patients is yeah. kind of the way I read the article. Yep. Um, and, and what they said is, you know, we've seen this data out there, but we think this is the biggest case series and here's what we saw. Mm-hmm. So the nystagmus, even though the test question is nystagmus, right? It wasn't as common as we would have thought. It wasn't. And, you know, reading through some of these prep materials, you might be... You might, you might be led to believe that if someone is doing PCP or has ingested it, that they will always have nystagmus. We found that in this in this report, it was something like mid-50 percentile, right? In, closing in, in on 60%. Closing on, in, so yeah, 57.4% of patients specifically presented with nystagmus. I mean, that's close enough to a 50-50 shot for me where it's like, can I really rely on this as a, you know, as a solid <laughs> clinical presentation? And it, so. it might help you confirm the diagnosis, but absence of it doesn't eliminate yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Means. And I think the other thing that surprised me as I read this article, and uh, also the, let's see, the Sterling article, I think, was the other article. It didn't seem like hypertension was impressive. I was thinking, you know, this could just be a whole bunch of uh, guys like me walking in, because that's my blood pressure, right? Sure. Um, it's not... It wasn't 170 over 120 mm-hmm. commonly, right? Those were there, but that was pretty rare. That was more like uh, 5% of the patients that yeah. had that high of a blood pressure. And I think one of the difficulties is, is that we could, we could try and refine or, tr- or try and uh, focus in our minds and saying, you know, most likely these are uh, young adults between the ages of 18 and 30 that are most likely going to do this. But... Even in the patients that I saw, they fell well outside that age range. But to that point, you could say, well, this technically would be hypertension if they're over 140, over 90 for our, uh, you know, the American uh, Cardiac Association. Had, had at the time. At, at the, the time. time. At right, the time, right? Now. Yeah. Um, but, but in terms of seeing like, you know, uh, what is it, malignant hypertension with uh, mass, one, you know, 180 over uh, 100 with end organ damage, um, it's, it's, again, if it's not there, it doesn't rule out the, the chance that you ha- are seeing PCP intoxication. Those kinds of things did happen. There were some, sure. there were some hemorrhagic strokes Definitely, from hypertension. Yeah. Um, but those seem to be fairly rare. Fairly rare, yeah. yeah. I think there was only one patient that, was, that we were talking about that was like 230 over you know, 120 in terms of their, their blood pressure. Now, the other thing that they talked about in the McCarran article was agitation and violence. Those two symptoms each were happening about 35% of the time. Mm-hmm. Bizarre behavior about 30% of the time. And I think what I took away from that is if you see somebody that has unusual behavior, maybe that's a big clue that somebody, you know, that, that this could be PCP intoxication. So maybe you have some sort of nystagmus, maybe you have some hypertension, but bizarre behavior the differential would often be schizophrenia, I think, in this case, but I think PCP intoxication would be a good route to go down. Well, and before the mic was hot, we were talking about some of the definitions that they use or examples of this bizarre behavior. And I, I, I agree. I think that this is, is something that you can use as, you know, the cluster of findings in your clinical presentation to help you to be able to narrow down, like, yeah, I'm probably dealing more with PCP here than anything. And, and frankly, I think that that's probably why we've focused more on using it as a clinical diagnosis than really relying wholeheartedly on a urine uh, analysis or even a, a blood sample analysis. 
So um, just to give an example, I think what they talk about with regards to aggression, about a third of the people that they saw that came through had either threatened to hurt somebody or did hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. They gave examples of uh, uh, people chasing spouses around with machetes, stabbing grandmothers, uh, and then setting themselves on fire. Uh, pretty unusual things that you wouldn't, I think would be very rare. And, and so if you see the, the rare kind of unusual things, think PCP. Well, and, and to talk to that too, I think maybe it's, it's not something that would nail down the diagnosis because there's, I think that, I think of maybe things like bath salts that can also present mm -hmm. that way too. But again, it helps to narrow down and kind of prune the list of drugs you would be thinking of. I think that's a great way of saying that. The other thing that I thought was unusual, they talked about bizarre behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. The non-aggressive stuff. Yeah. And then they listed a lot of things that seem to happen on the freeways. So people driving under 10 miles an hour on the freeway. And that sounds like it happened m more than once. Mm -hmm. uh, they talked about people lying down in, the in busy streets. Um, they talked about people sleeping on top of their cars, which was kind of an odd behavior. And they also talked about people being found sort of wandering naked. And it sounded like that happened, you know, not, not rarely. And of course, that's something that I think typically happens in an alcohol or a benzodiazepine withdrawal delirium with mm -hmm. that autonomic, you know, kind of activity. Um, I want to go back to the nystagmus very yeah. quickly. Um, when I was taking tests that were testing principles about PCP, it seems to me that they talked about, um, oh, I want to say vertical nystagmus as being a, a key to the diagnosis. But according to the McCarran article, th there wasn't really a predominant type of nystagmus. No, I think it's just it being present more than anything. And, and I think that if, we, if they were to dig deeper, it would probably just maybe muddle more of, you know, of, of trying to nail down, is it vertical, is it horizontal, and, you know, it ruling out PCP intoxication. So McCarran took a, a much more broad approach of just saying, is nystagmus present? And, uh, and that seemed to give us, you know, maybe more of a, a realistic. A better syndrome yeah, to look better, at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so even, I mean, the, the really crazy thing that, that was mentioned in this was uh, presence of not only rotary, nystagmus, which I think is fairly unusual, mm -hmm. right? but combinations of types of nystagmus that would show up. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I felt like I, I kind of, I can't really talk with a lot of authority on this point, but um, I know that in my short time in the emergency department, seeing something like that would lead me to worrying about some type of um, a vestibular stroke or, or some type of neurological presentation as well. And, uh, and so it, it would lead me to do maybe some more focused exams. But, um, but I, I'm, I'm interested, Dr. Roundy, in, in your approach of, as a, from a psychiatric point of view, with that presentation of nystagmus. Was there anything else that, that you wanted to elucidate with that? I don't know that there is anything more other than, you know, this, this belief that maybe one type of nystagmus is predominant. Yeah. Jettison that and be aware that maybe even two types of nystagmus may be present. At the same time. Yeah. The other neurologic symptom that I think is worth mentioning was there, there were a lot of movement disorders associated with this. Yeah. Um, there was uh, both um, like tardive dyskinesia symptoms. There were... I think, um, I, think I saw like uh, ichthyesia as well. I, I, might be, I might be thinking of another resource. Rigidity, yeah. jerks. Um, Lots of movement stuff, and, and even though antipsychotic medications seem to be used quite often with this condition, um, 
it, the, the authors were pretty clear, hey, this stuff was showing up before we gave antipsychotic medications. Yeah, which which leads to the, the idea, or maybe some... Uh, maybe some... Uh, more uh, focus of that the it definitely does hit on those dopaminergic receptors and and just the how broadly it it touches on each one of these systems throughout the nervous system now the the sterling article i do want to point out that there was a case series done of 107 patients who were diagnosed clinically um, with pcp intoxication Mm -hmm. Uh, 27 of those were verified by your analysis and in those 27, that, that rate of uh, nystagmus seemed to be a lot higher. So the range is, in, in smaller samples, the range is, was higher. Mm-hmm. In this 1,000 patient sample we had, the range was lower, the, the presence was lower. But I think that speaks on some level to the challenges we have with data, right? Where it was collected, how it was collected. All of these studies came out of California. There seemed to be more use there at the time. But I, I think it also does speak to the fact that even with our, our, you know, amassing these clinical findings and trying to put them into one box and help diagnose, even even as a clinical diagnosis, it's still difficult to nail this stuff down. So if you're worrying as a second year medical student whether you can identify someone who has PCP intoxication, I think that uh, there's plenty of ED physicians and others that would say, hey, we're still working on it too. What a great way of saying that. Now, the thing that, there, there were a couple of caveats to this, right? I, we mentioned before when we were talking about receptor physiology that there are some effects that work counter to each other, right? Mm-hmm. So, so this um, article that, that described, the McCarran article, described all of these unusual types of behaviors. But I think the Tarek article, which was this very comprehensive review, I really liked the way, I'm sorry, Dr. Bay, not Tarek, the first name was Tarek. This Dr. Bay, the article by Dr. Bay and his group, which was in one of the California Clinical Review Mm -hmm. journals, um, did a great job of talking about how, even though you might see somebody that was aggressive one moment, you might walk back 15 minutes later and see them totally, you know, sleeping, not, yeah. not able to stay awake. So there's a, really a lot of fluctuation around these kinds of symptoms as well. And I'm not sure that the other articles spoke to that quite as much. I agree. Um, one of the things that is kind of scary about this that shows up is psychosis, Yeah. right? So I, I shared a couple of articles with you because, you know, I, here I am at the state hospital. Everything is about psychosis, <laughs> right? Everything's about schizophrenia. Um, the first article I shared was uh, an article. I'm not sure you had the chance to read that one, but mm-hmm. you and I had talked about it. It's this, the article where uh, a group in the 1950s and 60s was trying to figure out, hey, how can we build a, a model for schizophrenia? And they had done a couple of things. The article I shared said uh, they had kept people awake for 123 hours and they did all sorts of tests on them like galvanic skin, uh, blood pressure, uh, blood uh, heart rate, all sorts of things that were very interesting. And they had done this, this group I believe had done this with a number of different kinds of uh, psychomimetic uh, substances and and they found this, they they felt like, they started this argument in the 1950s that PCP was perhaps our best model for understanding schizophrenia. And then I shared another article with you, one about a group of physicians at Fort Hood. Yeah, so I I did have a chance to read that one. And um, 
as I'm looking over this uh, uh, article by Luby that uh, about building a model for schizophrenia, it, it's definitely one that I'm going to look back at <laughs> um, because it's it's very <laughs> compelling. So much to read. It is so cool. Um, but yeah, so the the one that was uh, at found or the, the the study that was done at Fort Hood. I just want to make sure that I've got it. The case series. Yeah, the right? case series. So I'll so, set, I'll set the ground for this, and then you tell me please, kind of yeah. where it went. So so. Um, there was uh, apparently soldiers at Fort Hood even in the 70s. This was in 1976 that it happened and then published in 78, if I recall. Mm -hmm. Apparently, even then, soldiers were fairly creative about finding substances of misuse. I think that still continues. I know the military is constantly working to uh, minimize the effect of, of drugs on, on the actions of the soldiers, uh, of the service members. But uh, apparently, a group of, of service members found um, a white powder that they were told was THC and instead they ended up with PCP. So there was this rash of, of psychotic soldiers who ended up arriving at the hospital on base. And I forget the name of the hospital. Do you remember the name of the hospital? Uh, on, uh, I don't remember. It was at, it's uh, on Fort, or at Fort Hood. Yeah. So uh, uh, Darnell. Uh, yeah, Darnell. Darnell, Army yeah. Hospital. Darnell. That's, That's right. Darnell Army. So, so these soldiers showed up and they had a bunch of patients who were now psychotic. They were able to trace it back to what looked like PCP ingestion only in nine of these guys, and they excluded another five from the analysis because they, they said, well, there seem to be other things present, yeah. but we still think PCP caused this. And then yeah. what happened with those nine patients? So what, what ended up happening is that uh, they, the, the main thing is they wanted to see a couple of things. They wanted to see not only the characteristics of presentation, but they wanted to see uh, how long it persisted for and then what, how they responded to their treatment. Um, the characteristic that was common amongst all of these nine service members, eight men and one woman, is, uh, is that they broke out into almost like a, an acute psychosis. And so um, there were several that, uh, I think maybe two, about, so there was five that had responded within two weeks, plus or minus two days. Um, but then there were three more uh, that almost never recovered. They were there for 30 plus days, 60 plus days, 90 plus days, still dealing with this, this uh, psychosis that they had had after the ingestion of PCP. And if I remember correctly, they were, they were being treated with haloperidol to help treat that psychosis, but uh, specifically in the worst case scenario, it really didn't do a whole lot to help them get back to their baseline and, and you know. Yeah, recover. I saw that about half the patients had what appeared to be a permanent yeah. schizophrenia, essentially. Yeah. Right? And, and it, when, it, when it, the onset was not just an acute psychosis, it looked like schizophrenia. Yeah. And in fact, they, they, re, they cited one of the Luby articles that we mentioned before, who did a lot of early work in the 50s about that, and they said, hey, I, I think we should use this as a model for schizophrenia, yeah. this PCP intoxication. Uh, the other thing that I was struck by was that uh, I think they used a lot of different medications. So these were first-generation antipsychotics, yeah. um, thiothixine, um, haloperidol, and it seemed like one other one. And after after months, you know, about half the patients never really got better. One of the patients did get better with ECT, and I thought that was interesting. So oh, that is neat. Yeah, um, I want to talk about illness management now. So there's a couple of different phases. I think the answer to long-term psychosis management is not as clear. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think you would treat it much like you would schizophrenia. We've talked about that in other places. 
The acute management is what may show up on on various exams, and there was there's a fair amount of discussion about how to there tackle is. this. It seems like. 20-ish years ago when I first started taking tests that were testing principles about treatment of uh, PCP intoxication acutely, it seemed like one of the answers was give people vitamin C, um, acidify the urine, and try and eliminate the PCP more quickly. Um, but I think one of the articles that you sent me said, whoa, yeah. hold on now, you don't want to be messing with that because it will make the possibility of uh, CK-related injuries higher. Exactly. Does that sound right? And that's and that's a common uh, sequelae of, of P, uh, PCP intoxication. And I, I might be using common a little bit liberally, but uh, yeah, it seems fairly ra rare actually in, yeah, the, in, so, the, in the data. But this is the bad one, right? Yeah. This is this is where you really are going to hurt your patients if you're not watching. Exactly. For this. And I, maybe I should say is that it's not uncommon to see in drugs of abuse, specifically amphetamines, cocaine, and PCP, is rhabdo uh, or rhabdomyolysis. There we go. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, and so it can precipitate a, a, a massive kidney injury and, and you could be in a, in a world of hurt. And so I think that that's where the, the brakes were like, hey, let's just you know, calm down on this. And, and so they tried to move in, in one of the articles that you had sent me, I, wanna, I can't remember exactly which one, but they had talked about um, using physostigmine mm -hmm. as well as uh, haloperidol. Yeah. to help with some of the uh, physiologic effects, so the sympathomimetic effects of agitation and restlessness and things like that. And then if that wasn't helping, using haloperidol, if they presented with acute psychosis or, or yeah, agitation. agitation. It was really interesting because they didn't find any harm from the physostigmine use, but they said that, that based on the hypothetical harm, Valium seems like a better choice. So even though they kind of went through this, they, they, they still went back to benzos. So, and I, I had to dig back up some uh, information on physosigmine again, so I got a chance to review it. I mean, one of the biggest contraindications is, is if you have any type of lung uh, pathology, asthma or anything like that, I mean, you could, you could be compounding some of the physiologic effects and, and the risk-benefit ratio tends to plummet at that point. So I think that that's one of the reasons why they kind of backed away from physosigmine is because it, it would be pretty difficult to get a good medical history on this person before you give them, you know, such yeah. a, a strong cholinergic drug. I think one of the arguments for uh, diazepam, also known as Valium, is that it does seem to be different than the other benzodiazepines in terms of how it acts on muscles, right? It seems to have some sort of muscle relaxing ability. Yeah. Whether that's true or not, whether that's lore or not, I, I'm not entirely clear. That might be a topic on another uh, podcast yeah. where we, we dive into those things. Um, but but that seems to also be something that not only helps with aggression, but mm -hmm. independently would help relax the muscles where there might be CK elevation. So I, I do like that that pathway quite a bit. And and looking at it from you know an emergency department perspective, in the management that I was able to watch uh, and participate in, as well as in the resources that I've used, um, the main idea is that you want to try or you're working to treat the symptoms of the patient mm -hmm. and if you can help get them under control more rapidly we're going to decrease the likelihood of getting to a rhabdomyolysis or getting to uh, you know any, any other physiologic sequelae that we, we definitely want to mitigate mm -hmm. and so the idea is that we can get these people in we can administer uh, benzodiazepines either uh, diazepam as you or yeah valium as you had mentioned uh, or even lorazepam. Uh, it's quick, easy, uh, fairly inexpensive, and, and we can help to get these patients hopefully better sooner. 
Um, but as far as the, these long-term effects, uh, and this is where my interest, you know, in, in speaking with you was, is, you know, what, what can we do in order to help these patients to avoid some of those psychotic features that, that uh, we've seen in the literature? I don't know that there's an answer to that in yeah. anything I saw. I'm just pointing out a couple of things that might be management related. So benzodiazepines would help with both the aggression and the muscle rigidity. Mm -hmm. uh, Benadryl. Yep. was mentioned by, let's see, I want to just make sure I'm giving appropriate attribution here. This is Dr. Bay, right? This was the clinical review oh, article yeah, yeah. where he mm -hmm. talked about the presentation, the problems they're seeing in the emergency departments and how they were managing this. And he talked about for these dystonias that are not, that, that they're not uncommon, they're not common, but they're also not rare, I guess. They're somewhere between rare and uncommon, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, they were using Benadryl, right? Yeah. Um, and to watch out uh, for using Benadryl because that will give you a false positive on your drug test. That and uh, Effexor, yeah. also known as Venlafaxine. Venlafaxine as well. I, I would just uh, dextromethorphan as well. Dextromethorphan, yeah. Yeah, so the diphenhydramine, dextromethorphan, and venlafaxine all precipitate a, a false positive mm -hmm. test for PCP on UA. Seems like in uh, the podcast we just did, we talked about the core molecule that's in a couple of the antidepressants yeah. and also in the stimulants and uh, how that might be one of the things that's showing up here. I'll have yeah. to, maybe that's something we'll look at another time too. have to take a look into it. Um, they talked about uh, naloxone mm -hmm. for possible co-ingestion of substances. Um, I, I would assume that you'd have some clinical indicators of, of respiratory drive dropping. Um, they talked about thiamine and dextrose at 50%. I think I'm used to hearing stuff along those lines with a different condition. Yeah, more uh, alcohol use disorder um, and Wernicke's encephalopathy. I think that, so if you have a known patient or a patient with known alcohol use disorder, I think it would be beneficial. Um, as far as empirically treating or having it as an adjunct to just straight PCP intoxication, I'm not familiar with any of the benefits there, but... Yeah, I'm not familiar with that either, unless it's with the comorbid alcohol. But again, it wasn't... I, Dr. Bai really did a great job with this article sure. and his team that, that wrote this. And so um, my, my tendency would to be using that. And I think the comorbidity, one of the articles that... I think it was the Sterling article listed the comorbid findings on the UA like specifically. And it seemed like at the time, and of course this was in the 80s, alcohol was the most commonly most comorbid common. uh, substance, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it'd be difficult to comment on that in, in our day and age right now, but it wouldn't surprise me just with the accessibility and, uh, you know, and, and the drug use disorder, so. So they also talked about cardiac monitoring. It sounds like that's probably, uh, of the bad things that happen, CK is clearly one of those, but then there seem to be some unusual conduction delays. And then for the few people that get hypertensive, that uh, CV monitoring allows you to get two of those three big ones while you run fluids, which was the other thing that they yeah. recommended, right? Uh, two, one, and, and then adding on top of that, seizures. So I think yeah. that when, when you're dealing with a lot of these uh, um, drugs of abuse, I think those are the three main things, neuro, CV, we can get those things under control. And that's why the benzodiazepines, I think that that's that one of the reasons why they, they pick for that is it helps to lower that seizure threshold too, as well as control hypertension. And the agitation, yeah. yeah. Um, last thing that I think was mentioned is low threshold for a CT. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and this is one thing uh, that if I could pass on to any uh, students that are listening to this that are interested in emergency medicine, 
is that when you have a patient who comes in acutely intoxicated, it is very difficult to rely on their history. And so uh, there are several of the attendings that I worked with that would highly suggest a very broad approach to their uh, tests and images that they do. Because at the end of the day, we wanna make sure that the patient is, uh, we're gonna do everything we can to make sure that the patient is walking out of our emergency department in, in good health. And so we wanna make sure that we're, we're focusing on anything that could happen or could have happened. So very low threshold to get a CT head, neck, uh, even thoracic and lumbar spine if you're worried about some type of trauma setting. Um, I, I think it'd be difficult to make the adjustment for MRI or to select for an MRI unless there's a very clear indication that neurosurgical uh, intervention is needed. Uh, but definitely chest x-ray, definitely an EKG. Um, you, wanna, you wanna rule out just about everything, every other cause of altered mental status uh, that you can in one foul swoop. Two other things that were mentioned. Um, one of the things that really surprised me was that um, the recommendation for children, right? Yeah. So that apparently kids were picking up cigarettes that had been dipped in the, the quote, whack, the wet, the, the liquid PCP. And with that, they were actually having some pretty significant problems, right? Yeah, so with this, I wasn't able to, to like really dig in as deeply as I wanted to. Um, but, and so I, I'd maybe like to punt that back to you if that's okay in terms of the, the adolescent as well as children presentations. Yeah, I, I, he mentioned it, and again, I was kind of focused more on the adults. Yeah, me too. Um, because, it, I, I mean, the reality is it's just kind of heartbreaking to think about kids picking up cigarettes and smoking them and getting PCP intoxication and having, um, he mentioned some of the potential neurological sequelae of a developing brain, and I just couldn't even look at it. It was just too overwhelming. So, and that's the, that's the biggest fear, is that you are essentially putting this child at a disadvantage for, for the rest of their lives. And, and I can't really speak with a lot of confidence towards, you know, what possible sequelae could happen, but if we were to derive it based off of the presentations here, it, it looks pretty startling. It's scary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was enough data to really make conclusions yeah. from what he was saying. It seemed like it was more, hey, these are possible. Yeah. Um, the other, the other, the other recommendation. So we talked about uh, benzodiazepines. We mentioned that antipsychotic medications are sometimes used. There was a caveat in the by article about uh, watching out for hyperthermia and adding an antipsychotic on top of that. Um, but the last thing that was also mentioned is that you may need to use restraints to keep people safe in that kind of a setting. And and this is where, especially in the emergency department, I know it's very common through, or this is common knowledge throughout medicine in general. Restraints are always the last ditch effort that you can use, but added on top of this with the chance of rhabdomyolysis, it, you really gotta make sure that these people are sedated and calmed uh, with, with some type of pharmacologic intervention because they can rapidly deteriorate and then adding another layer of complexity of the analgesia that's seen with this. I mean, it could really be a mess if, if not handled quickly and swiftly with, some, with uh, some medications. And again, one of the potential concerns about restraints is that if he's fighting, or she, yeah. mostly he, it seems like based on the data we saw, fighting against those restraints, you're not helping your CK Absolutely. at that point. yeah. All right, let's go back and uh, highlights, things that uh, stood out, anything that anybody wants to add on to this, Rhett? 
Uh, you know, I don't have anything to add. A super interesting discussion. I'm um, nothing to add here. It was also very interesting. Thanks, Angelo. Um, Jamin? There's a couple things that stuck out to me that I they're they're kind of concerning. So we're kind of taught these things in med school, like that you brought the nystagmus, right? Mm-hmm. And it's what fifty-seven point four percent. Yeah. And we had a podcast a few weeks ago that we discussed the very clear answer is DBT when you see borderline personality disorder. And then you see the research, and it's even worse than your 57.4, that it's probably the best thing, but it's hard for us to really say it's great. And so it's hard to take that, that jump that you've taken um, on almost every topic I'm finding. Yeah, and, and <laughs> that so it's I, not that clear cut when yeah. you dive into how did we come up with this answer. And I think that we hear this all the time as, as we're getting into rotations. Um, you know, As for our listeners, uh, not exactly sure where you guys are at in terms of uh, your third year or even fourth year uh, clinical rotations. But we find, I hear often that uh, that uh, academic medicine is much different from clinical medicine. And and that I believe that that's true to, to a small extent that you know, in terms of, of making a clinical diagnosis or, or in terms of finding out the actual problem, it, it's much more, or it can be much more convoluted than in what we see in question stems on MBME practice tests, UWorld, as much as we praise and love UWorld, or even on the well-beloved sketchy uh, that, we, <laughs> that we think is, is, you know, Bible, that we think is, is gospel. Um, so making sure that as we're getting into these clinical situations as students that we work to maintain a very broad approach and learn from from our, our preceptors. And, and that's the reason why we've got Ram, Dr. Roundy here in, in helping us to navigate these very convoluted, difficult topics that, and uh, help us build our medical acumen. Oh, geez, that's uh, a very nice thing to say. I wish I felt as confident about it as you sound. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think the most important thing that I've tried to take away as I've started working with students I started working with students over a decade ago in this setting, and I've always enjoyed working with students. And what I learned from a fellow named Tyler Anstead is, if somebody, if a student's asking me a question, and I give an answer, and they kind of give me the look, and they say, "Are you sure?" I probably need to stop and listen really closely. And and you know, Tyler had this really great way about him that a lot of students have had, which is your data doesn't match up with what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I was right 100% of the time. I'm clearly not, right? And knowing the limitations of the data, verifying that you know what you think you know periodically, all those are great ways to try and uh, stay on top of the information, as is working with medical students, because i, I got to be honest, you guys really keep me on my toes. Most of the things we talked about today, I think I'd heard a little bit about, seen a little bit about, but reading you know, this compilation of a thousand patient mm-hmm. experiences adds so much more. And then having discussion about that in the context of a couple of other articles really helps me feel much more comfortable that, that if I'm in an emergency room and I see somebody that's acutely agitated and I happen to pick up nystagmus, uh, you know, then I probably better be checking a urine drug screen. I probably better be thinking about more than just schizophrenia. I do have to have a differential. There are things that can look like each other. Sure. And uh, you know, then if I see some um, variability in blood pressures, if I start seeing um, some agitation and then some sedation, if I s- hear the story that somebody was laying on their car and I can't get a good story out of why you know, or laying down in the middle of the road, of course all those things happen with my patients who have schizophrenia. But if it's odd, mm-hmm. I also need to think about PCP intoxication in addition to schizophrenia, Absolutely. right? And typically I s- 
say to myself, well, if it sounds really strange, there's probably a good bet at schizophrenia, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, last, last thoughts, Cam, before we uh, team out on this one. Honestly, I think that we've, we've really uh, looked at this as best as we can, and so, yeah, I, I'm good. Hey, thanks, guys. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out. Team out.